but we went to the Okoe River and we did some whitewater rafting and it was definitely up my alley. I enjoy those kinds of opportunities. Uh, my, my wife and I, we have kind of a discussion semi argument um, as far as some things that I would enjoy doing, such as I've always wanted to swim with sharks. Uh, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, I've always wanted to go skydiving. I think that would be fantastic. And she has let me know after she has gone to be with the Lord, those things I can endeavor in. Uh, but this one, being able to go whitewater river, uh, whitewater rafting, was something pretty early in our marriage that we got to experience with her side of the family. Had a wonderful time. Our guide's name was Cricket, and that's the exact name you want from, from your river guide is the name Cricket. Um, he, he, no joke. He was awesome. He was the best. And, uh, we got in there and we got to do some class three, four rapids. And, uh, if you don't know things about whitewater rafting, I guess five is the top. And so I was looking forward to it and he could tell I was excited. So he said, you want to go to the front of the boat? And I said, yes, I do captain. And so I went to the front of the boat and I'm uh, hanging on with my oar and I got my feet kind of strapped underneath, you know, with the boat or whatever. And uh, as it got pretty intense, one of the things that I realized is that if I want to stay in the boat, uh, it's good to hold on to that oar, uh, but that's not going to necessarily keep me in the boat. And it might be even good if I was like, man, Cricket, you know exactly what you're doing. You're the guide. I'm going to go and kind of lunge on you if it gets really kind of hairy or scary. So that way maybe I, I stay and I kind of hold fast on to you. Or I might even have this idea of I've read about whitewater river rafting and I have an understanding from this book I read of five essential keys to experiencing the joys of whitewater river rafting. I could clutch onto that book and be like, hold me. And then that way I don't fall into the raging water. But in the end, the thing that I got to hold fast to is that which is which is secure. And in that instance, it's, it's the boat. I got to hold on tight, hold fast to that boat. The Apostle Paul is wanting the church of Colossae and its church members to hold fast to Jesus. The same way that you came to faith in Christ and you entered into the kingdom uh, as a result of his grace um, and your faith coming into a relationship with him to have salvation and righteousness credited to your account, is, is how we need to live our life ongoingly. And what happens is, is not just in this day and time, and not just throughout church history, but even today, there can be a tendency for us to enter into a relationship with Jesus and go, Jesus, you were great at the beginning, but uh, I'm needing maybe something a little bit more. And a lot of times what happens within the Christian faith is people like to tack on some extra things that if you really want to achieve a certain level of enlightenment or depth or really be saved, you need Jesus plus something else to, to really be saved. And what Paul is wanting to express from just the, the heavens is that it is Christ alone and that is he is all that you need for your salvation and for your righteousness. And so we're looking today at this idea of holding fast to Jesus. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. We're in verses 16 through 23 this morning, and then we'll break this passage down. Paul says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you or disqualifying you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. 
If you had died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are asking that by your grace uh, that you would, you would speak to us this morning through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that we would have a keen understanding in our mind and into our heart that it would take root that what we need is Jesus. And what we need is just Jesus. And so where you're seated this morning, would you just pray that, that this morning you would examine your heart, your mind, if in any way that you've been tacking something on other than Jesus in your faith walk. And if you would, would you pray for me that I'll be a help to you this morning, that I would say only what the Lord would have me to say from this word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see is this idea of holding fast, that we want to hold fast to Jesus, but not tradition. Not tradition. Another way that you might be able to phrase it and even add to your notes is uh, hold fast to Jesus, not tradition or not this idea of legalism. Legalism, that, that we don't want to be about a performance-based faith, that there's these things that we are to do um, in fact, when, when Paul begins in verse 16, remember, he's, he's writing in light of what he's already written beforehand. And so if you weren't with us last week or the last couple of weeks, especially in chapter 2, the two sermons that we've seen, it's all about the sufficiency of Jesus, that he is all that we need, that he is more than enough for our salvation and our righteousness. And so to a degree, what Paul is saying in verse 16, when he says, therefore, he's saying in light of the sufficiency of Jesus, as we saw last week, and what he has done, not what we do, it's all about what he has done, in light of that sufficiency, he says, let no one act as your judge. And, and some of you may remember, with your keen eye and remembrance from last week, is that in verse 8 and in verse 16, and there's going to be another verse, uh, a couple of verses later on, there's this kind of cadence and rhythm that the Apostle Paul has used. In verse 8, it was, let no one take you captive. Now in verse 16, is let no one, no one act as your judge. Later on, we're going to see another one of these. These are these things that Paul is wanting to say, beware, because there are those false teachers, maybe with devious intentions, or maybe just unaware of what they're actually kind of sharing or espousing, but beware of this. Don't, don't let this take you off guard. And the first thing that he hits into is that you would hold fast to Jesus, not tradition. Specifically in verse 16, there's a lot of Jewish traditions that are referenced here. Uh, that these are things that we got to be we got to be careful with. That the traditions in and of themselves, the the food and the drink and the festivals, the new moon, the Sabbath, these these things are fine in and of themselves. But but we don't want to add these or tack these on to our faith or our salvation, our righteousness outside of Jesus. And so you had teachers coming into the church of Colossae wanting to say. 
if you really want to be a part of the faith, you got to do these things. And if anything that we saw last week and the weeks before, it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done and what he has accomplished upon the cross and through the victory over sin and death with also the resurrection. And so as he goes through these, I, I, I will say, like, take, for example, fruit or drink. Most commentators believe, and I would agree, this has to do with maybe some of the dietary laws and restrictions that were given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Uh, You can jump into Leviticus and read all about the things that they were told to eat or not to eat. And this is the thing, is is we could look at that and go, oh, well, that was the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and we don't need to adhere to that. And I would say, yes, that's that's true. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind is, is, I, I was sharing this with my wife, all of these traditions in and of themselves are not, are not bad. Especially, I would say, if you were a Jewish person, there's a lot of culture and heritage of maybe celebrating the festival of Passover, remembering how God delivered the people, your people, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. But it's understanding that these don't have to be adhered to, that these don't have to be followed. But yet there were teachers who were saying, no, 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 if you don't practice these things, then you aren't truly a Christian. And so I would say when it comes to food or drink, these dietary laws that we're reminded of, of even Jesus in, in the Gospels. He says in Mark chapter 7, he makes the statement, he says, Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it, go, does, or excuse me, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus Jesus, he declared all foods clean. You can see it in the book of Acts, chapter 10, the vision of Peter before he goes and visits the, the man Cornelius of seeing that there was all these foods that for a Jewish person to be seen just this sheet of all of these unclean animals that for centuries at this point don't eat. And now saying that they're clean to eat, it, it would be quite startling. And so what some people want to do on both sides of this aisle is say, well, you definitely should or should not eat these things or drink these things. And then on the other end, and what I would say is this, is is if you have maybe a health restriction from your doctor of something to eat or not to eat, okay, listen to it. Or if you want to have a specific diet or you have a specific conviction of something that you want to eat or not eat, drink or not drink, okay, that's good. Uh, You want to get healthy, have a specific diet, that's great. But we understand it has no basis for our salvation or our righteousness. The same is true. You can find the Apostle Paul mentioned this idea of Christian liberty in Romans 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things edify. It's this idea of what Paul is wanting to get at specifically in this passage is quit allowing people to come in and judge you and your faith and where you stand with God based upon what you either, whether you eat it or you drink it or you don't eat it or you don't drink it. He goes on, he talks about festivals, the festivals of Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights. What do you do if you don't attend these, if you don't celebrate these? Are you out? Same thing with the new moon. The new moon would be the beginning of a month. That's how they marked a a new month. The first day of the month was the new moon. And sacrifices were generally made at that time. So sacrifices would be made. So you got to continue to celebrate the new moon and have these sacrifices. You got to continue to practice these things because of how important the tradition and the heritage, heritage is. Same is true with the Sabbath. Now, we know that in this culture and in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was on a, was on a Saturday. It was designed as a day of rest. But even Jesus taught that the Sabbath was not for God, but for man, that we need this rest. 
And so a lot of people, there's been a lot of division and debate of what do we do when it comes to when we worship and what day of the week should we worship. And what we find is that, yes, in the old covenant, the day of Saturday was that Sabbath that you would rest and that you would rest in the Lord and you let the land rest and so on and so forth. All, all good. But at no point do you see in the New Testament or the New Covenant that you're to keep or to adhere to the, the Sabbath tradition. In fact, the church began to no longer have that pause or day of rest on Saturday, but on Sunday, just so that we have a weekly reminder that the first day of the week was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we want to celebrate that every week of, yes, our Savior is alive, not just Easter, but he's alive. And I'm reminded of this every week, every Sunday that we get that. But if we're not careful, even today, we're like, well, if you don't worship on Sunday, you're kind of one of those JV Christians. Uh, and, and it's this thing of, in our culture, we understand that perhaps because of, yes, a good tradition, people are accustomed to gathering together on a Sunday, and we want to gather people for corporate worship and to hear the, go the gospel and to hear the Bible be taught and to worship through song. Those are all great things. But this is what I'll tell you, I believe, according to Scripture, is... is Sunday is not just my only day of worship. Monday is a day of worship, and Tuesday is a day of worship, and you're getting the idea. Every day is a day of worship. It doesn't have to be one set-aside day as a believer in Christ that I need to wait for that. Now, do I believe that there are some principles of the idea of the Sabbath or a day of rest that I think are wise for us to bring into our life? I do. I believe the God of all creation who rested on the seventh, who didn't need it, knew how he created you and me to understand that if you go 24-7, seven days a week, you're, gonna, you're just, you're just going to crash. You're going to get burned out. There's something, I believe, within us to where we can have those six days of work and then have that day to where we do rest in the Lord and rest physically. But even that is a tradition that we can have in the life of the church of where I can, I can remember people saying, well, it's Sunday. You, you, can't, you can't throw a football. Uh, you, you, can't, um, you can't go outside and do anything in the garden. Like, you can't do anything. It's a day of rest. You just sit there, just like twiddling your thumbs and like, I guess I'm resting now. And, and I love, as I've studied this, it's, it's more about this idea of, of how are you getting restored in your relationship with the Lord and resting. Restoration for you might look different for restoration for me. But it's that idea, again, of we're not wanting to be legalistic to the traditions of it because the Sabbath, the festivals, the new moon, the food, the dietary laws that were there, what Paul is hitting on is this idea that all of these traditions in and of themselves are not bad unless we think they're a basis for salvation because, he says in verse 17, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In the same way, this idea, we want to focus on the real deal, on the real thing or the real person that brings about faith or excuse me, that brings about salvation and righteousness. No matter how many times I would sacrifice for a new moon, I still need another sacrifice. No matter how many times I would rest on Sabbath, I still need eternal rest. I need something bigger than what these things are pointing to. And so think about this idea of a shadow. I want you to imagine if my wife Tiffany was here and there was a different kind of lighting, but we're outside and she's standing here, but her shadow is cast over there. And I start talking to her shadow that's there on the ground. And I'm like, I love you, sweetheart. You're so pretty. I love your eyes. I can't really see them, but man, you look good. And I'm looking at her shadow, but if I will follow the shadow to the thing that is being pointed or coming off of, I see the reality. 
I see the real deal. I see the substance. I'm not going to hug a shadow. I'm going to hug the person, the reality of that person. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, these things, they were great, but they were pointing us to the substance, to the real deal, to the hope and the uh, uh, righteousness and salvation found in Jesus Christ. So, not unimportant, vital within the Old Testament, but they were designed to be observed because of what they point to, the real thing. And in all of these, think about food or drink. My mind immediately went to when we observe the Lord's Supper. There's a tradition, if we're not careful, we're like, if you don't observe the Lord's Supper, if you don't eat of the bread, drink of the cup, are you really a Christian? It's like, it's pointing to something far more significant. Hopefully you want to observe those things, but it's not a means of salvation. It's not a right that we have to go through. Jesus is the one that we must, if you will, go through and have faith in him. And it's pointing to that which completely satisfies Jesus' body and blood spilt upon the cross, broken upon the cross, so that our sins could be atoned for and forgiven. Same thing with the festival. Specifically, let's think of the festival of the Passover, of the lamb that would be slain there the night that the death angel was to pass over all the homes in the land of Egypt, and the firstborn would be killed. That Passover is pointing to the lamb of God, which will take away the sins of the world, according to John the Baptist in John chapter 1. Same with the new moon, as I mentioned before. All of these monthly sacrifices of, we got to sacrifice, we got to sacrifice, but it's a shadow that is pointing to the ultimate and final, final sacrifice that is needed for us in the person of Jesus. The issue of the Sabbath is a shadow that's pointing that rest in your life is here and now found in Jesus, and it is also rest for eternity found in Jesus. I don't need the day, I need the person for all of my life. we got to move on. Okay, hold fast to Jesus, not tradition or legalism, not about what you do. But the second thing is hold fast to Jesus, not experiences. This one might get uncomfortable. Hold fast to Jesus, not experiences. As I mentioned before with the first point, maybe you might add to that first point legalism. You might add to the second point, hold fast to Jesus, not experiences, and maybe in the parentheses put mysticism. This is what Paul is talking about, mysticism that you had to have these almost out-of-body experiences, this supernatural, this spiritual experience in order to maybe really know that you are saved or to demonstrate that you, again, are not JV Christian, you are a varsity Christian. And he begins by that same rhythm and cadence that I mentioned before, where in verse 8, let no one take you captive. In verse 16, let no one act as your judge. In verse 18, he now says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. That same cadence, that same rhythm. Literally, it's the word disqualify you. It's this idea that there are almost these spiritual referees, these false teachers who are coming in and getting into people's ears and saying, you know what you really need to know that you are in Christ? You got to have this incredible out-of-body experience. Like you got to have a certain feeling. And that's what mysticism truly is all about. It is the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. That experience trumps everything. That the decisions that we make is based upon purely upon how I, how I feel. And, and the thing that I want us to be careful with is, is that this is very heavy on feelings and at times can almost be anti-intellectual of what, what does your heart tell you? Well, how are you feeling in this moment? And where we have to be careful with this is 
is I would say even in our day and time, we are a culture that is big on what did you experience? Did you feel a certain way? Feelings are wonderful. They're powerful. They're given to us from God, but our feelings can, can be manipulated. And it, they can lead us maybe down a path that is actually not of the Lord, but maybe of ourselves, and we become actually a bit delusional with it. And where we have to be careful is, I think we would all agree, music is an incredibly powerful resource that the Lord has given us in which to worship God. But I've seen, and maybe you've seen, is I've, I've had specifically like students and, and kids that I've worked with, specifically as they got older, and they would have these powerful moments to where they did. They, they got a goosebump. I'm not anti-goosebump. Great, you got a goosebump. But they would have these incredible experiences because music can swell and it can move you. I mean, have you ever taken the music or the score out of a film? It's completely different. Like it just, it's flat. You're just hearing dialogue and like random like sound effects. The music is so powerful in that. And, and for a worship setting, I'm not saying that in any way that we take the music out. It's just that we're careful that, did I really worship God if I didn't feel this thing? If I didn't have this movement in my life? And the thing is, is that there are going to be moments in your life that I've, I've experienced, if you will, of where I've wondered, God, where are you? I'm not, I'm not having that same feeling in this like, well, I base the reality of who God is upon my subjective feelings or upon the authority of his word and who he declares himself to be. That's what I have to base it on, especially when my feelings get a little bit out of whack. That I want to lean into him and the truth and the authority and the sufficiency of who he is and what it is that he has accomplished. Because if I go by the the, the ebb and flow of my feelings, then I'm going to have moments of where, am I saved? Am I not saved? Does he love me? Does he not love me? And Because we, we all have those emotional swings in our life. He goes on in, in, in verse 18. He talks about not being defrauded or disqualified of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Uh, uh, that's the idea of belittling, belittling or humiliating yourself. It's almost this idea of a false humility. It's... Um, he goes on from there, he says, the worship of angels, and he speaks of visions and all these different things. The worship of angels would be an emanation of God. But we also understand that we don't need an emanation of God or from God. Uh, even Matthew 4 says that we are to worship only God when Jesus was in the wilderness. Some people believe Jesus just to be another emanation of God, like almost like an angel, but maybe a little bit higher. But read Hebrews 1. He has a name that is greater than the angels. He's not on par with the angels. That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for some kind of new vision or revelation. That's where we've got to be really careful of whenever we're reading the Word of God or we're not reading the Word of God and we have a feeling in the midst of maybe a circumstance and go, God told me. Or maybe even more terrifying is when people say, God told me to tell you. And it's like, man, if, if it doesn't line up with the scripture, that makes me really nervous because you're about to give me some authoritative statement. And are you saying you have new revelation from God? Oh, you better be careful. Because there is the authoritative word of God. That's how a lot of cults and a lot of tangents off of things that I would not even say are Christianity kind of emanate because someone came along and said, if you don't see this certain thing, literally, if you don't have this golden dust kind of come down upon you, if you didn't see that, experience that vision, have that feeling, then you're, 
you're not only on the JV, you're, you're not really of the faith because the faith has advanced. It's moved on really from some of the things of Jesus. We're keeping some of the things of Jesus, the good stuff, the stuff that I kind of like, but we're also adding these other things that really demonstrate that you know the Lord. And we just, we got to be incredibly careful with this idea of what I'm going to experience. There are some, because the experience is such a big deal, that there are individuals, even just out of the Christian faith, but people who will go into a sweat lodge and allow themselves literally to have toxins poured out. That's great. That's good. Get the toxins out. But people will go into that and go, I'm going to literally go into the sweat lodge until I see something, and then I'll know what to do. Then I'll know what God is telling me to do in this moment. And we just got to be careful with the feelings experience thing. And again, we're in a culture where if you didn't experience it, was it real? And what I would say is what is real is the word of God, the son of God (laughs) and the Holy spirit. Like that, that is what we cling to. That is what we hold fast to. So what I want to be careful with is this, is it wrong to have a profound spiritual experience? No, The Apostle Paul had a profound spiritual experience. Read 1 Corinthians. Is it first or second? Anyway, he went to the third heaven. You know what I'm talking about. He had a profound spiritual experience. But this is the difference. There's a difference between having that experience and pursuing the experience. Because the problem with the pursuit of an experience is that it tends to lead you away from the pursuit of a person. And that's dangerous. We don't pursue the experience of now I know because I feel this way, God is happy with me, loves me. It's no, I pursue a person and I know him. And the way that we make sure that we stay and hold fast to that which is true is we get into the word. That we get our truth and our marching orders, as it says in verse 19, from the head. The head referring to Christ, the head of the church, the head of the body. Because it's from him, the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows from a growth which is from God. We want our growth not to be from experience. We want our growth to be from God. That's how we want to know that we are maturing in our faith and growing in our faith. Because what false teachers were coming into the life of the church then, and I believe even now, is this idea that that you're going to grow and come to know Jesus, but then you're honestly going to kind of mature outside of him. Whereas, as he says at the very end of verse 19, this is a growth which comes from God. You begin with Jesus, you grow with Jesus, you mature with Jesus. You're never outside of Jesus looking for anything else. Number three, hold fast to Jesus and not self-discipline. Not self-discipline. Now, I gave you the other words that kind of coincided with the other points. You had legalism, mysticism, this is asceticism. If you want to know how that's spelled later, you can come and ask me later. But it's the the term asceticism. So you have these three different ideas. And what asceticism, or this idea of self-discipline, is when he says in verse 20, if you have died with Christ. This is a technique that Paul would use. You can find it in Philippians chapter 2, of where Paul will use kind of an if-then kind of thing, uh, clause, but it's at this moment where he's saying if, but another way that you could, you could honestly translate it is since you have died with Christ. Like, if this is actually true, since this is the truth that you have died with Christ to the things of the world, he's like, then why, oh why, oh why are you submitting to the worldly ideals and standards? Why are you getting, if you will, your marching orders from them when you know what the truth is and you've died with Christ? 
And some of those ideals was this idea of rigorous self-discipline, of aestheticism, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Another way to put it is the denial of bodily appetites, the denial of fleshly indulgences, these things that you think are going to really set you apart by the way that you treat your body or inflict your body to listen to you, therefore I know I'm in Christ, or therefore I know I have righteousness or salvation. The, 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 the true definition is rigorous self-denial. That is what asceticism is. It's an attempt to free uh, the spirit from the prison of the body. That's asceticism. The attempt to free the spirit from the prison of the body. It's very strict lifestyle. It's a very severe lifestyle. And that I will gain righteousness through self-denial. Illustrations of this throughout church history. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. But throughout church history, there was this idea that, ooh, I erred, I sinned. If I'm really going to grow in Christ and learn from that, I'm going to cut myself. And that'll be a reminder of me, don't do that again. I'm going to force myself in a rigorous self-denial mindset. Or I'm going to whip myself. And so there was a, even sex within um, Christianity that would say, you need to do these things to kind of, again, level up. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that, that, that's not what we're about. We hold fast to Jesus and Jesus alone to help us with our, with our struggles, with our temptations it's not because we are going to do something about it. It's he's going to do something about it. If I couldn't have my sin forgiven uh, beforehand, what makes me think I can deal with my sin now, even in Christ, I needed him to forgive it. I need him to overcome it. It doesn't matter how often I whip myself or cut myself. I need him to overcome because he is the overcomer. I need Jesus. Hold fast to him. He goes on and he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, denial of bodily appetites. And he even says, these all refer to things destined to perish with use. They're going to fade. They're going to rust. They're going to go away. It made me think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. An example of this could even be the denial of maybe of money, that someone would say, if you really want to be a true follower of Christ, you need to advocate poverty. You need to give away your possessions, and they'll reference the rich young ruler of see what Jesus did with him. So there is a precedent. And I would say that that is a, not a prescriptive text. That is a descriptive text of what God asked that individual to do of giving up his wealth to follow Jesus. But some people will say, well, First Timothy lets us know that we should advocate poverty because the root of all evil is money. But it's not. It's the love of evil or the love of money is the root of all evil. It's like, where is your heart? Because God cares about the heart because he cares about you, his creation. And so with these commandments in verse 22, these commandments and teachings of, of men, I love that he adds that tag of men. It's as if he's saying these commandments and teachings are for mere men. These mere men in and of themselves will fade away, decay. They will perish. These spiritual referees that are coming into your life, into your church, they are trying to disqualify you for not abiding with their made-up rules and standards. Let your rules and your standards come from the word. Don't believe that the path to spirituality lays in exposing your body to some kind of severe treatment of the elements or withdrawing from the world. And this is actually something, again, that's happened within the life of the church. The founder of monasticism, his name is Anthony. I never got his last name. I looked it up a lot. Couldn't find it. But he's known as Anthony the Great or St. Anthony. He founded monasticism, the idea of, you know, kind of pulling yourself away, becoming a monk, rigorous self-denial. And part of what he practiced was he never washed his feet or his vest. 
And that was a demonstration of, I'm truly of the Lord. Simeon Stylites, I might have pronounced that incorrectly, but you don't know. Uh, Simeon Stylites, he spent the last 36 years of his life atop a 50-foot pillar, just on this pillar, just hanging out, living his life up there. How he got food, I don't know. You do the research. But he believed the path, again, to spirituality lay in exposing his body to the elements, like to the weather, and by withdrawing from the world. And it's like, well, if I do this, then it really demonstrates my allegiance and my love for the Lord. And it's one of those things of, but how, how is that not being consistent with the word of God? That we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That we are proclaiming the gospel and glorifying God's name if we're withdrawing from the things of the world. The great reformer, Martin Luther, nearly wrecked his life and his health because of this issue of asceticism, of this rigorous self-denial. You can read stories of him and just some of the things that he put his body through in order to really say, see, I love you, Jesus, and I'm experiencing this. Therefore, it shows I love you. And friends, I just want to remind you, some people have this struggle with, does God really love me? And we want to go, based on what? How could he? The reality that God loves you is because God loves you. He is love. And it may be difficult for you to wrap your mind around because you know you and maybe things that you've done in the past or experienced in the past. But God is greater and bigger than those. And he loves you unconditionally. The agape love that you hear people talk about in settings like this. He loves you unconditionally. Not based upon your performance, your experience, what you do, what you've seen, what vision you've had. None of that. It's based upon the fact that he is love and he loves you and he demonstrated his love for you that even in the midst of your sin, Christ dies for you. That's the love of God that we have. Now, some people might say, well, pastor, hang on a second. So we don't need to deny ourselves of anything. We can just do whatever we want. That's not what I said. Some of you may be called by God, say, for example, to have a life of self-denial in some aspects, but it has nothing to do with your righteousness or your salvation. For example, there are missionaries, and I know, as Doug has told us, we're all missionaries. I agree. We're all missionaries, but I'm talking about going on the mission field overseas, that you might feel that God is calling you and believe that God is calling you to go and to serve a specific people group overseas, and there will be a sense of some denial in your life, that, that there are going to be things that you're willing to give up for the cause and the purpose of the gospel that God would be glorified. And that's an incredible, wonderful thing, but it's never in an attempt to gain, again, spirituality, faith, or righteousness. It might appear spiritual, but if we're not careful, we don't want to make sure that the things that we do or we don't do is because God is leading us to that and not because we think it's going to make him like us more. He even says at the very end of verse 23, he makes this comment that these matters of mysticism, legalism, asceticism, that these matters have the appearance of wisdom. That's why people were coming into the church and they were being so like, that is an interesting idea. What if I did really deny myself? Then I might really level up in my relationship with the Lord. Man, if, if I went back to the Jewish tradition, because that's our roots, then I'll really be of the called and the elect and the saved. Man, if, if, if I could have that vision, then I know I'm in. And then that's that I'm, I'm, I'm in the faith, that my salvation is indeed secure. But Paul says, man, these have the appearance of wisdom, 
But look what kind of wisdom they are. Notice how many different times he uses the word self. It's self-made religion. That's legalism. It's keeping up with the traditions of what you can do. Do you realize that all religions on this earth have everything to do with what can I do to obtain, to get to God, to get to God? And the beauty of our faith in Christianity is that our God stoops and he comes to us. He extends a hand to us in his graciousness and his mercy to say, quit trying to get to me. It's never going to happen. You're never going to obtain or attain to, to, to that holiness because of your sin nature and because of the things that you've done. But I love you enough to come to you, to stoop from the heavens in the person of Jesus. Self-abasement, self-made religion, self-abasement, the idea again of mysticism, feelings heavy and experienced based on living a life of false humility. The severe treatment of the body is asceticism. And he says essentially that none of these will accomplish what you want. If you're going outside of Jesus in an attempt to overcome these issues of your life of struggle or temptation, you will fail. And even if you do experience a moment of relief, I would say it's a false relief. It's a false peace. It's a false hope. These are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Think, think about maybe in your past where you're like, I'm going to try and fix this issue in my life or this temptation, this struggle that I have. And man, you, you pulled your boots up by the bootstraps and you were just, I'm going to rigorously deny this thing. Maybe it was a struggle, a temptation you had of some sort. And you did good for maybe three months, maybe a year. You were in a program, you, you were, you were uh, visiting with other people, you were even maybe in a counseling session. All those things, they can be fine. They can be perfectly fine. I'm a big advocate of counseling, specifically biblical counseling, but yes. But, but our answer and our hope is found in Christ. Go to him again and again, because the only thing that will stop fleshly indulgence in our life is Jesus. That's it. Jesus is the answer of salvation and righteousness for eternal life, but Jesus is also our answer for salvation and righteousness in this life. He's all that we need. So this is what I ask you this morning. Is the basis of your faith and your righteousness on what you do or experience, or what you have done and what you have experienced, or is it Jesus? Now, I know the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Every single one of you go, well, according to what you said today, if I say anything other than Jesus, then I'm obviously got the answer wrong. I don't care if you get the answer right or wrong. We aren't looking for right answers. We're looking for the truth of where you're at in your relationship with Jesus. And what does you no good is to go, I know the right answer. Jesus is the only way to overcome. But as you examine in your life right now, Christian, let's just talk to the Christian. Christian, you know that Jesus is the only means, but are you also adding something else to your life? Again, I'm not saying some of the Jewish traditions, they have some, they have some great history and heritage. You can celebrate the Passover, but it has no basis for your salvation. You can have a powerful spiritual experience, but it's no basis for your salvation. I'm going to go on a tangent because it's only 11 o'clock and I got time. I don't know if I was going to add this or not. A few weeks ago, I challenged you guys to share your story of how you came to faith in Christ and to do it without saying, this is how I felt. 
Not that feelings aren't big. Like, I can remember how I felt when I came to faith in Christ. There is a burden that is lifted. That's powerful. But when I share my experience with my feelings of how I came to faith in Christ, the person that I'm visiting with, it might relate to them, but their life is their life. Their circumstances are their circumstances. Their experience will not be your experience, though it can be relatable in some ways. But what I found is that people, yes, they need to perhaps hear that, and that's a great starting point. But eventually there comes a point of, this is how I felt when I came to faith in Christ, and this is what I did whenever I came to faith in Christ. But there still comes that issue of, but how do you know that you're in Christ based upon your experience? So if I don't, and here's the thing, you guys have heard the testimony of someone who goes, and this is a great testimony. I can't, I, I heard the gospel, I gave my life to Christ, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and I poured it all down the, down the sink. I threw the needle away, and I never had a struggle ever again for the rest of my life. Powerful testimony and experience. Amen? Yeah? Huh? But what about the person who is steeped in a, in a history of maybe uh, of a family that has been addicted to alcohol for years, and they hear the gospel, they come to faith in Christ, but they still struggle? Are they no less saved? Because their experience wasn't that guy's experience? Or that their faith wasn't as profound as his faith because they still struggle? Oh, you better be careful with what you say. It's not based upon that experience. It's based upon the work of Jesus Christ. Your faith in him. So that when you share your story, do it, please. It's what you're called to do. You're ministers of reconciliation. Hopefully you're at least one day a week sharing your story with somebody. Jesus is coming up in a conversation. But as you share your story, there comes a moment where why your story is your story is because of the gospel. So you got to get the gospel out to go. It wasn't based on a feeling that I know that I'm saved. It's based upon the authority of God's word, the gospel of Jesus, and this is what it is. Because far too often I've asked the question to people, tell me your story. And then at one point, you know, I grew up in church, I got baptized, I did these things. And I'm like, at no point did you ever reference Jesus, sin, salvation, repentance, faith, or grace. And those seem to be some pretty big pillars within the story of salvation. I'm not saying that you got to be a preacher and go through, you know, this, this like 10 point bullet list. <laughs> but what I am saying is there got to come a point that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them so that they will know that Jesus is the source of their salvation and that he's still the source of their ability to overcome once they're saved. Because friends, I don't know about you, but there are moments where I don't, I don't feel like I did when I gave my life to the Lord as a six-year-old. And yes, I believe children can place their faith in Jesus. There are moments where I'm just like, Lord, feel so distant from you. And if I allowed my feelings to dictate, I might even wonder, have I lost my salvation? Like, was I ever really saved? I don't know. And Paul tells us to examine our faith. So that is a good thing. But I have to come back, not based upon how I feel, especially when I'm low. Some of you have been there. You've been low. I'm not going to go back on, well, I remember my parents wrote in my Bible, August 31st, 1987, Stephen gave his life to the Lord. That's a great marker. That's a great tradition. I love that. I love seeing that. It's beautiful. But those words mean nothing unless my faith in Christ was true. And I know that he has saved me, not based upon my works, but based upon his work. 
And that's how I know I can go forward. And I may know, the next day, I may still feel low, depressed, or whatever, but I know I'm saved based upon the authoritative word, work of Jesus and the word of God. So, Christian, maybe you need to examine this morning, are you basing anything outside of Jesus or to overcome the things of this world? And if you are, I'd say repent. Can you couple it with some great biblical counseling? Yes. Some great friendships. Yes. Accountability. Yes. There's wits and wisdom that God has given us to be able to overcome some things and have help with that, but rooted in Jesus. And the final thing is if this morning, if you're just like, I really just don't know that my faith is in Jesus, it might be something else or Jesus plus something else. How do I know that I am saved? It's a, it's a great question. Don't be ashamed of that. That's, a, that's an awesome question. But don't leave it unasked. Visit with me or one of the elders. In just a minute, we're going to sing. In fact, would you guys come on up? We're going to sing, a, 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 for some of you, probably a familiar older hymn. I asked them if we could sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. Some of you remember it. But I love that it says, no turning back. <laughs> no turning back. So for those of you who are in Jesus, you know that your righteousness and your salvation is secure in the person of Jesus. I want you to sing this song as almost your form of worship, maybe even repentance of, I'm following you and I'm not turning to anything else for the source of my life, my hope, and my salvation. It's Jesus alone. But for others of you, if you're just, you're wondering, you're questioning, Doug's in the back, Tim's in the back, I'm right here. If you're someone that's like, I just, I just want to visit. I want to begin a conversation. Conversations are so good. I want to begin a conversation of what it means to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Come and visit with me. Come and visit with Doug. Come and visit with Tim. We'd love to talk with you. I know we have a little family meeting afterwards. You know what's more important than that? The souls of men and women. That's what, that's what we're more concerned with. So as they sing, you guys go ahead and stand. And worship the Lord. If you'd like to talk with somebody, talk with one of those three.